20 million. Uh, that number mentioned in both the Wall Street Journal and the Washington Post is how many Americans could be vaccinated from COVID by the end of this year. That's significant, isn't it? We've been waiting, waiting for the vaccine, and it appears to be in sight. 20 million. It means that eventually schools will open. Eventually stores will open. Eventually jobs will return. Travel will resume. Homes will open back up. Not immediately, I get that, but eventually, sometime in the future, there will be fewer in critical care, fewer in hospitals, and there will be fewer funerals. Weddings will accommodate more. Graduations in person will return. There will be a new normal to explore. Uh, By January... Of 2021, another 25 to 30 million could be vaccinated. I read that and I just think hope. Hope is in sight. The heavy clouds of fatigue are lifting. And all of those stories and scenarios and possibilities, possibilities are just in that number, 20 million. To some, it's a number. But I look at that number, and I see possibilities. I see hope. But for now, we wait. We wait. We do what is so very difficult to do in the United States. But Advent is a season of waiting. Advent, the word advent from the Latin adventus means arrival or visitation. And it's a time in the church calendar that culminates on Christmas Day. And the advent wreath you see has five candles. Uh, Four stand for hope, peace, love, and joy. And we light these on the Sundays before Christmas. And then the fifth candle we'll light on Christmas Eve. The Christ candle. Symbolizing Jesus Christ who is the light of the world. Jesus Christ who is the artist who stepped into his painting. The author who stepped into his own story. He wrote himself into his own story. And he is the one who has come to repair all that is broken in our world. He is the medicine. He is the better vaccine. And so Advent is about celebration and anticipation. We celebrate Christ's first Advent in Bethlehem. All the while, we anticipate his second advent at a time of his father's choosing. And when he returns at this second advent, he will heal this sin-sick world. When you think about 
the hymn that is sung so often at Christmas. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Look at those lyrics again. Because they really refer to the second advent. He rules the world with truth and love. But until then, we wait. We wait. The scripture which Beth read for us this morning is God's word to us to tell us what he wants us to do while we wait. This is not about twiddling our thumbs. This is not about being idle. This is about meaningful ministry and meaningful activity while we wait. Many of us have heard 1 Corinthians chapter 13 uh, at weddings or funerals, uh, perhaps a teaching series on marriage. It's often read as a standalone poem, as if you know, the Apostle Paul had a notebook and a warm beverage and was feeling extremely close to the Lord from an intense personal worship experience out of which flowed this beautiful lyrical section of Scripture. And, and, and to be clear, it is, it's beautiful. I mean, this is art. 1 Corinthians 13. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. That's beautiful. And what about the imagery? Could you hear the imagery of, of symbols and gongs and mountains and temple sacrifices and, and childlike words and ways? Oh, and, oh, and then the, the poem's summit. Meanwhile, these three remain. Faith, hope, love. The greatest of these is love. Drop the microphone. <laughs> That's, it's beautiful, wouldn't you think? And it's more than a standalone poem. 1 Corinthians 13 is the vision of our church. Because love is what we do during Advent. Love is the most important activity we do while we wait for the Lord Jesus Christ. The word love appears no less than nine times in 1 Corinthians 13. That's significant. And if you were to just outline that chapter, you would find that in verses 1 through 3, we learn about the absolute necessity of love. And then in verses 4 through 8, we discover the surpassing qualities of love. We do not get to define love. God gets to define love. And then in verses 8 through 12, we discover the, the enduring nature of love. Love is rugged. Love is resilient. Love endures. And then... The poem um, culminates in verse 13, the supremacy of love, necessity of love, surpassing qualities of love, enduring nature of love, and the supremacy of love. There's a lot there. 
So let's just look at the first three verses this morning. Let's, let's talk about the absolute necessity of love. 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 3. Yeah. Listen, here's why this matters. We're still having guests both uh, in person and online every Sunday morning. And uh, our, our guests are wondering, what does this church believe? What does this church, uh, how, do they, how do their lives reflect their beliefs? Well, this is a good time to be here. You're about to hear what we believe as a church. You're about to hear what matters most uh, as uh, our congregation. You're about to hear our, our calling. I mean, think about what our world would look like if these verses came alive in our country. Think about what our community would look like if these verses came alive where we live. Think about your marriage and family. What, what would that look like if these verses came alive? That's why this matters. The absolute necessity of love. So let's just walk through verses 1 through 3 as we discover what uh, Paul's big idea is. Verse 1. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels. Here Paul talks about this amazing gift of tongues. This miraculous ability to speak a cognitive human foreign language previously unlearned for the sake of sharing the gospel with someone from another language. Also, the ability to speak a cognitive angelic language, a language located in the heavenly realm for personal edification. When God said in Genesis 1, you know, let there be light, he probably wasn't speaking in English. So we get a taste of human tongues in Acts chapter 2. And then we get a taste of uh, angel tongues in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. And Paul's point is this. You can speak human or you can speak angel. You can possess the best rhetorical skills of the finest speakers in Corinth. But if you lack love, you have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Just like the pagan temples in Corinth with their brass instruments. And Paul says, not your speech. He says, you. That's who you are. Without love, no one can tell whether you're a Christian or a pagan. That's how much love matters. Verse 2. Paul warns against the instinct to be wowed by those who preach well or those with mountain-moving faith. Verse 2 says, if I have prophetic powers... And understand all mysteries and all knowledge. And if I have all faith so as to remove mountains. Read that again. All mysteries. All knowledge. 
all faith. Well, well who has that? Not even the, not even the, the finest prophet has uh, all mysteries, all knowledge, and all faith. But what if you did? Wouldn't that be something? We often assume that anyone who can perform spiritual activities must, must in fact be deeply spiritual. They must be called to lead out in a ministry worthy of our uh, financial support. Well, they have mountain-moving faith. They can visualize and then they can actualize the vision. But there's a problem. Apparently, you can have mountain-moving faith without love. Apparently, you can preach and prophesy on stage and then step off stage and be without love. Apparently, you can be an encyclopedia of biblical insight all without love. And if that's true, Paul says, I'm nothing. Notice, he, he didn't say your vision is nothing or your sermon is nothing. He says, you're nothing. You're nothing. Verse 3. Paul's point here is, is alarming, but very clear. I, it's possible to camouflage lovelessness with personal, painful sacrifice. Isn't that what he says? If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. How easy it is to fall into the subtle trap of thinking that our sacrifices please God. But can you hear what Paul is saying? Big idea coming your way. Here it is. It's love or nothing. It's love or nothing. You, you, either, you either love others or you're a nobody. Lovelessness makes you nothing before God. Well, these are strong words. What kind of a person would God say, they're nothing to me? What kind of a person would, would God make a judgment? No, they're not significant to me at all. What kind of a person is that? A loveless person. That's who. It's love or nothing, church. I mean, these, these verses warn us not to be too impressed with stage presence or curb appeal or outward religious behaviors in and of themselves. If you see someone sacrificing his life, well, that might be good, but it might not. If you see someone divesting herself of her stuff for the poor, well, that might be just wonderful, but it might not. If you see someone with a compelling speaking gift, that might be good. It might not. God has to be in the picture. Why are, why are you doing this? What does this have to do with the Lord? It, 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 this might be an incredible display of the Holy Spirit in and through you, or it may just be virtue signaling. 
It might be someone addicted to their own significance. Do you recall the story of the Corinthian church? Paul had been persecuted and tortured in Philippi. And his enemies chased him out of the cities of uh, Thessalonica and Berea. He, he preached in Athens, but had a so-so response. And then he came to Corinth, and he was fighting fatigue. He was fighting fear. And in that moment of discouragement, Jesus appeared to him in a vision. He said, I'm going to use you, Paul, in your most discouraging moment. And I'm going to show you that the gospel can reach the biggest and baddest of people. And he went to Corinth. Corinth was not a nice city. I mean, it was rife with, with thievery and corruption and sexual immorality and idolatry. And people went there to make a name for themselves. Paul went to make a name for Jesus. And over the next 18 months, a revival broke out. And lives were changed and baptisms took place and a, a church was formed and, and the, this was a unique church of highly gifted people. I mean, they'd gone to Corinth to get things done and, and they knew how to get things done. They knew how to make a difference. And so when you read 1 Corinthians 13, you're reading a picture of the Corinthian church. They had speech gifts, the languages of men and angels. They had prophetic insight. They had the kind of faith that could move mountains. The Holy Spirit had given this church the ability to perform miracles. They could heal people and, and still others had the financial means to sacrifice. They gave much money to the work of God and all of these gifts belonged to a congregation that was, get this, about five years old. <laughs> Amazing. Highly gifted church. And it was a highly troubled church. In verse 4, we read that love is patient and kind. Why would Paul say that? Because the Corinthians weren't. Uh, if you just look back at 1 Corinthians chapter 11, there's a admonishment that the Apostle Paul gives to this church because they're, they're, they're not waiting for one another to all gather together before sharing in the table of the Lord. It's just kind of become a free-for-all. Oh, and in verse 5, it says, love does not insist on its own way. Well, several in the church were insisting on their own way. I mean, in, in, in 1 Corinthians chapters 8, 9, and 10, there's this conflict about whether a Christian should eat meat that's been associated with the pagan temples there in the city of Corinth. And some of the Christians are saying, well, I can't do that. I mean, my conscience, I, I came from that background. And when I have that kind of a meal, it's really, it's just an unhealthy spiritual trigger for my conscience. And, and others, though, said, it's meat. Meat's meat. Who cares? Put some ketchup on it. It'll be fine. And there's just insensitivity going on. That the most gifted church in the New Testament 
was also the most troubled church in the New Testament. The, the church that could do the most miracles was also the church with the most moral lapses. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 deals with a major moral issue that's threatening the church. Huh. Highly gifted, highly troubled. It made me think about it made me think about our future. What if God uses this season of waiting to refine our hearts? What if in his mercy and grace during this season of advent, and I'm not just talking about the month of December, all of us would have to agree that this whole year has been one of advent. But what if in his mercy and grace, he grants our prayers that this church be a church of nations? What if when we gather again with all the doors open and all the masks off, people from every tribe and tongue and nation come, what will happen? What will happen is that we'll have more conversions to Christ. We'll witness more baptisms in Christ. More brothers and sisters will belong as members in this body of Christ. More ordination services will occur for ministry to Christ. And we'll have more problems, more challenges, more moral lapses, more controversies, more difficulties, more hard conversations. How do you navigate those challenges? Love, that's how. Love, love matters more than talent. Love matters more than preaching ability. Love matters more than mountain-moving faith. And love matters more than sacrifice. Is that what your Bible says? Yeah, are you there? Say amen. amen. <laughs> you can have all of these abilities, natural or supernatural. You can be committed to church membership and church tithing and church serving. You could do all of them and, and not just be immature, but not be a Christian at all. Uh, this is alarming. But this is what our Lord himself said in Matthew 7, 21 to 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Oh, my goodness. Oh, and then, and then take a glimpse at Matthew chapter 10, verse 1. Matthew 10, 1 says that Jesus called his disciples. He called the twelve. He gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. And then the scripture lists the twelve by name. You see the last one? That's right. Judas, who betrayed him. But, but that's, a, that's a sobering thought because Judas... He was called by Jesus. 
given authority by Jesus, empowered by Jesus to heal every disease, the, the very one endowed by the king would in fact betray his king. It's love or nothing. That's what Paul says here. You can do the math, can't you? We know math. What's 10 times 15? 150. What's a million times a thousand? It's a billion. What's a billion times nothing? Nothing. Take the biggest number you can think of. Whatever that number is, multiply it by nothing. What do you get? Nothing. That's right. It doesn't matter what you start with on the left. It's what's on the right that matters. And if the number on the right is nothing, the answer will be nothing. And God is saying that life without love is nothing. And you can pile up all the good deeds and all the education and all the spiritual gifts and all the noble works that you like, without love, it's still nothing. And you can be smart and beautiful and strong and wealthy and healthy and multilingual and famous, and you can even be from Oklahoma. <laughs> but without love, it's still nothing. Your gifts and abilities don't make you spiritually mature. Spiritual gifts do not signify Christianity. Spiritual fruit does, and you can't fake fruit. The fruit of the Spirit is love. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And love is first for a reason, for it is from love that the rest of the traits of the Spirit's fruit flow. You know, we ministers are sometimes asked, if I become a member of your church, will I get to use my gift? Or, or will my gifts be recognized by the church? Or sometimes it comes across this way, um, why aren't my gifts being recognized by the church? Well, make no mistake, I don't want to be misunderstood. Paul valued every one of these gifts that he spoke of. He he valued them greatly. They, they were given by the Spirit to build the church. So he's not discounting them at all. He is simply ordering them after love. So Paul's first question at a church membership interview would not be about your gifts. He would want to ask about the quality of your love. That's what he'd want to know. Your willingness to serve others for Jesus' sake. Because Paul knew that any congregation would make room for your gifts when the congregation saw that you want to serve others because you've come to love them, not perform before them. So this chapter on love, which so many people love... Starts by telling us what love isn't and who doesn't have it. And these are really hard verses. I mean, they really are, you know. Uh, look at verses 4 through 8. So, 
when you see the word love, insert your name for that. Here, let me. This is the challenge. Randy is patient. Randy is kind. Randy is not jealous, conceited, or proud. I'm making my wife giggle right now. My goodness. Thank goodness she has her mask on. That's a challenge, right? It's a challenge. And the fact is, this is not Perfectville Christian Church. We don't gather here as nice people with little to do but find ways to be nice to needy people. We gather here as sales executives trying to survive tough competitors so that we can feed our family. We gather here as business owners trying to keep the doors open one more week. Some of us here serve as directors of corporations, and you know from experience that love is not a byword in your boardroom. Some of us here have sat on one side of the union table in conflict with the other side, who also happens to attend this church. We gather here as husbands and wives trying to stick it out in a marriage where love has wilted into boredom and mutual toleration. We gather here with needs and drives and and rights and goals that don't harmonize with self-giving love. So that we must love is clear. But this is a sinful, broken, fallen world. By now, you may be asking yourself, well, you've been talking about the necessity of love, pastor. Just what do you mean by love? And the answer is in verses 4 through 8, which we will have to discuss next week. (laughs) My look at the time. I'll give you a teaser. Instead of inserting your name, um, insert Jesus' name in verses 4 through 8. Jesus is patient and kind. Jesus does not envy or boast. Jesus is not arrogant or rude. Jesus does not insist on its own way. Jesus is not irritable or resentful. Jesus does not rejoice at wrongdoing. Jesus rejoices with the truth. Jesus bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Jesus never ends. Amen. That's a good word, isn't it? You see, you see, 1 Corinthians 13 is ultimately giving us a picture of Jesus. Jesus, in fact, not only spoke angel language, but he spoke the language of his Father. John 1, 1 says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus was face to face with God in intimate conversation with his Father. And then John chapter 1, verse 14 says that he became flesh. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He came face to face with us, taking our nature so that He might speak to us. Um, There's an ancient Christian creed. We studied the Apostles' Creed earlier this year. There's another ancient creed similar to the Apostles' Creed, more detailed. It's called the Nicene Creed. And it says of Jesus, for us and for our salvation, he came down. So whatever gifts you may have, 
Love always means that you come down. It means that you come down to use those gifts for the good of others, not to make yourself feel good. It means that you come down to do the things that are uncomfortable or inconvenient for the sake of others. It means that you come down to serve in places unseen on earth, but in full view of your Father who is in heaven. And we do this, why? Because Christ first came down for us. We love because He first loved us. So Christianity is first and foremost, not about the sacrifice we make for Jesus, but rather it's a response to the sacrifice Jesus made for us. It's not about our performance for him, but his performance for us. It's not about our obedience for him, but rather his obedience to God for us. This is what empowers us to love as he loved. And as he loves, the hub of Christianity is not do something for Jesus. Rather, the hub of Christianity is Jesus has done everything for us. And so any love that we give is his love through us. So what if we became a congregation known for love? But don't you think that would heal the soul-sick nation we're living in? What if we as a congregation prayed, Oh Lord, make me into the kind of person who is loving. Oh Lord, love others through me. Because love is more than a feeling. And love is more than an action. Love is a way of life. Paul begins this entire section by saying, And now I will show you a way of surpassing quality. A more excellent way. Oh my goodness. What if we could become a congregation who walked the way of surpassing quality in Christ? What if our congregation were captured by such a disposition of love that our community could not help but say, these people are the vaccine our soul-sick country needs. Who is their doctor? Who is their doctor? Who, who is their king? And how can we get an appointment with him? <laughs> Real love is Jesus. Real love silences noisy gongs and clanging cymbals and self-amplifying systems. Real love always comes down. And we know this. Because love came down at Christmas. Amen.